Hello and welcome to episode four of the Hashtag Product Design Podcast. For those of you who don't know or couldn't guess by the title, this is a series of talks where I'll be picking the brains of industry experts, exploring different topics within product and design. I have the pleasure of being joined today by my good friend, Timo Stosius, and today we'll be exploring the topics of digitizing the education space and being the founding designer of a startup and hiring designers in the early stage. Uh, Timo, again, pleasure to have you on here. Please, could you just start by giving a quick overview of your career so far? Of course. Thank you very much and uh, welcome from my side as well. I've had the huge privilege for the past five years to co-build up Stewie. Um, We provide a central platform for communication and organization in schools uh, to connect all students, teachers and parents. Um, And I've had the honor to build up everything that's related to design and marketing for the first years. Um, I've basically been doing everything related to our brand. So, so when we firstly started, everything that somewhat needed to be designed or somewhat had, was related to our brand and to communication. Um, and yeah, we grew to 150 employees. Um, so it was the right product for the right time. And yeah, basically that's the quick journey. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think timing was uh, timing was of the effort, essence with you guys for sure. And obviously we'll delve a little bit deeper to, into that later in the podcast too. Um, so just in terms of before your time at Stewie, what, what were you doing just so everyone can know? <laughs> yeah, so, so I consider myself to be a design-driven problem solver, you could say. And, and yeah. I've had the fun just designing things from very early on. Um, I've actually come into graffiti when I was 12 years old and I, I realized I have a passion to, to leave traces, like to, to create things that's, that other yeah. people see. Um, and, and I don't do graffiti anymore, but basically doing <laughs> yeah. design is something similar, yeah. right? Um, you, you just create things that other people see or use. Um, and I've been into art a little and wanted to study product design, actually like physical product design. Um, and I've worked for, for some time in the advertising scene um, in an agency in Munich. Um, but eventually I realized that I sort of like to do a lot of different things and I didn't want to be in the, in the advertising um, area uh, for, for my whole life. And actually then when I just started to study, uh, it was when Daniel, our CEO and, and co-founder of Stewie, uh, reached out to me and asked if I would like to join the very early founding team to build up the design and marketing. So it was very early, actually, in my career yeah. um, that I've had this privilege. Um, I dropped out of uh, university for that. Um, it was some kind of a risk, obviously. Yeah, but actually, I've talked to, to profs and they said, actually, that some, some other people would be happy to have such privilege. And I, I should just go for it and see if I later come back, can go back to university if I need it. Yeah. Um, and so far, I, I have not... Neither. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely yeah i'm sure you're uh you definitely don't regret the decision to to leave uni early yeah, to, to build absolutely. build to it for sure um okay cool so you know, obviously the first topic we wanted to cover off was um digitizing the education space um and obviously the the next part would be obviously being a designer at such an, an early stage and being the founding designer there um first thing i wanted to cover off really was Obviously, education as a whole, I think, traditionally has been quite far behind in terms of digitizing a lot of areas that that has been needed to or, or could have been digitized, of course. Um, why, do, why do you think personally has been difficult? Why do you think education is far but further behind a lot of other industries in terms of digitizing or going digital? Mm. I guess there's 
um, two reasons. Um, one is simply because the market is <clears throat> really fragmented or like schools have, have various um, kind of requirements and, and uh, habits to do things. Uh, we can talk about this later, but yeah. I, I think the more, more important um, reason is just because it's grown like this historically. Like when we move back some hundred years when schools started, um, there was no other way uh, to teach children than having like grouping them, having like 30 people in the room, um, having one teacher in the front and, and he would be the expert to talk about everything. And they've had books and, and that was it, right? So it's grown historically like this. And, and we didn't have the point where the whole society would kind of step back from that to challenge it and sort of rethink it with the, um, with the modern um, possibilities we have. Um, and obviously because schools, there's not the competition like you have in the market where, where you really have the need for innovation, right? And so schools would just continue like it, like mm. it used to be for years. Um, and, and I personally think that most schools are sort of an, an island that's isolated from the actual world that most people live in. So um, I've, I've went to school for 15 years uh, and I've learned so less comparatively to the past five years at Stewie, yeah. right? Um, and, and you talk so much about theoretical problems and you, you learn really a lot of things that you don't really need for the later life. I guess everyone knows that sort of, um, yeah, and, and that's course, so sad yeah. because <laughs> everyone knows it, but still we, we have it like this. Yeah. Um, um, but but I also like to talk about it um, with a metaphor. So when I asked, okay, if our educational system was a vehicle, um, what what kind of vehicle would it be? Like would it be a, a fast car, like a sports car, for example, yeah. or would it be um, something rather old-fashioned? And and I would say, yeah, it would be a very old-fashioned thing. Um, it would be a, a Kutsche, we say in Germany. Let me uh, look at like a coach, I guess you say. The, the yeah, yeah. wooden yeah, thing sure. with two yeah. um, horses in the front. Yeah, um, yeah, of course. Yeah. That's like what it was like. It used to be modern at some point in time, but today it's inefficient. Um, it's, it's not state of the art. Um, and what we do, unfortunately, with, with digitization in a lot of schools is we don't rethink the, the vehicle at, at all, like the system we basically just put a screen into that coach yeah. and we say we sort of use digital tools to still run the old system, which mm. is a little sad. Um, but we with, with Stewie, we have the vision that we sort of um, in the first step digitize the processes and the, and the school life as it is today, mm -hmm. this, this old fashioned system. And once we have a digital infrastructure in schools, we have whole new possibilities to rethink the system overall, right? Yeah. Something like very personalized learning experiences. Um, you, you really need an infrastructure if you wouldn't have classes at some point anymore yeah. to kind of still organize that daily life and to, to have a connection between students and teachers in some mm -hmm. way, um, no matter what the, the role of a teacher is at the end. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I completely agree with everything you said. I think obviously I went through school as well. Um, and generally, as you said, it was exactly um, you have a teacher and standing in front of 30, mm -hmm. you know, potentially 30 students who all come from different backgrounds, who all have different interests or all at different stages of their learning and things like that. And 
you know it does become very difficult and to to really understand the individual where they want to get to how you can nurture their mm. learning and then take them where they need to be i also completely agree that probably 90 percent of what you learn in school you won't take into into future life i think there are much more valuable things that could be taught at school um mm, that absolutely. would actually really generally benefit people yeah. yeah 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 and i think um what could change the system as well is if you could only become a teacher after having worked in in the public um market for for some years like if you would need to work in a business first and then go into school you would have a whole better a lot more feeling for what life is actually like outside of schools right most yeah. teachers they go to school when they are children yeah. themselves then go yeah. to university then go back to school mm. and it, it's always about grades it's always about exams like that's the whole yeah. way of thinking mm. right and and we there's some examples like in in a school assignment it's sometimes about okay you need to write at least five pages yeah. to yeah exactly i i saw i literally saw a post on linkedin i can't remember who it was from but i saw that exact post on linkedin um i think it was yesterday actually i, I saw it and i was like it's, it's so right you know in in you know when you write a dissertation for a university or something like that that's you know thousands and thousands of of words information that you know there's yeah how many words you have to put into into the how you're explaining or solving this problem or you know whatever you're writing about essentially but <laughs> when you're in business you know you have very limited time to to make your point and try and solve a problem there and i think yeah. you know just just from looking at some of the most successful entrepreneurs in in tech in in any area of business a lot of them dropped out of school a lot of them didn't do very well in school mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's you know they took mm -hmm. they they took it upon themselves to to really learn what you know how business works how you can be successful in business and a lot of it wasn't you know turn up to history geography lessons that you know you know you're not interested in or you have no no interest in taking further for sure um when it comes to digitizing in in education where do you see still that there are big or huge gaps that can be can be um solved by by digitizing so luckily, due to COVID also, we are in quite a okay place with the communication and organization mm -hmm. of schools. So actually, um, this, this infrastructure part, I would say, is, is um, okay in, in average. But there's still huge, huge potential in asking what actually do we learn and how do we learn, mm -hmm. um, right? So it's still basically yeah. just... As I mentioned, that the system students still need to learn math stuff, even though maybe they they want to become an artist mm. um, or so. Like yeah. to put it very simply, um, and I think we could go more into personalized learning experiences to really um, leverage the strengths and and uh, and interests and passions of young children. Um, I guess there's huge potential and there's some some uh, companies that sort of work on that but i still i guess the wider market still doesn't have a lot of this um and also what we personally experience with stewie um, most schools have some communication solutions so for example a like school messenger or whatever they use some tools for video conferencing because they had to during COVID. yeah but but it is still um fragmented so they would have 15 various tools to do things 
Um, and what we um, built with Stewie is this central wallet all-in-one platform because it just makes sense, right? No teacher and no student wants to have five different school apps yeah. and switch between those. And um, also it, it's a lot of administrative effort um, yeah. and we want to connect the dots or we, we do connect the dots. Um, so we have everything in one place and also we can use um, the various features to have smarter workflows. So, so, so one example is um, we, we have a wide range of features and, and one of them is the timetable. So we connect to the timetable data of the school and then we use this data to create groups. So the first time you sign up as a teacher, if you were like the class teacher of 7A, you would directly have your chat group with all students from 7A and one chat mm -hmm. group with all parents from 7A, right? That's fully automatically. You don't need to manually set something up. Um, uh, and also we create one cloud folder for each of these groups and automatically assign the permissions to all the uh, members of these groups, Yeah. right? So we use the timetable data for various features. And I think this is something that just makes sense because otherwise it would be way, much, way, way too much uh, administrative yeah. effort. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, I completely agree. I, I also think that, um, as you said, you know, teachers generally go to school, then they go, they, you know, they study at university and then go back to school as, as teachers. And, and probably, you know, if they're not IC, you know, technology teachers or have, have used computers quite um, often, they, they might be you know, quite far behind in terms of, um, you know, using mm -hmm. digital products, how they can actually benefit them. I know certainly from when I was in school, pretty much everything was still done on paper. You know, all your files, records were kept <laughs> in a paper folder. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, the, the registers, everything like that was all done through paper, attendance, everything like that. You know, it was all kept in you know, physical diaries that you had to, to write on. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think certainly... Stewie has solved quite a few of those issues. Um, I know something you mentioned, obviously, was COVID and the pandemic. I think that's the, the next topic I wanted to cover off, really, was, of course, the pandemic hit so many different industries badly in a, in a negative way. And a lot of it, industries are still struggling from that. However, in your situation and uh, Stewie's situation, certainly the demand and a need for, for products that, that likes to be offer um, came to light much more and the, the need for them grew substantially. Um, so how run, run me through how the pandemic impacted you guys and obviously the effects um, in a positive manner, let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So pre-COVID, some schools regarded something like Stewie as nice to have. Yeah. I think, yeah, we like that's cool. Um, and when COVID hit, it was essential, right? It was the only way um, you could still be in touch. Um, and and you, the only way as a teacher, for example, you could even inform um, the students about when they need to go back to school, right? Um, so it was a little weird because during the first lockdown, everyone was like, okay, we're now taking a break as society. And like some people yeah. were, okay, time to calm down and learn a new hobby or whatever. Yeah. And we were like 24 <laughs> seven struggling yeah. to, to keep the platform alive. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we were really, really, I remember some days I would wake up in the morning. I would work, 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 have like five minutes to go to the toilet and then work. And at the evening, go back to bed and sleep. That's yeah. literally what some, some days were just because we were so, um, yeah, everyone really knew that, okay, this is our mission to really show that, that Stewie makes sense, that Stewie works and, and they really rely on us. Um, and so 
at the first lockdown, we were sort of onboarding, like before the lockdown, we were onboarding like 10 schools per month, 10 new schools. The onboarding process is quite comprehensive because um, yeah. we need to connect to the timetable um, software. We need to create automatically um, these accounts for all the students and, and teachers and parents. They are personalized. Um, and some, some more things we need to set up. So it was a lot of effort. And 10 schools per month. And in the first lockdown, we suddenly had to onboard 50 per week. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it was massive. And we really had like, like meetings to figure out, okay, how can we do this? What is the maximum number of schools mm. we can onboard? Um, and that actually was a real boost at the end. Like it really helped us to, to structure our processes more efficiently, mm. um, to, to really grow basically in a way that otherwise we would have needed one or two years for within one or two months. Yeah. Um, and, and as bad as COVID really is, um, and, and was for a lot of people, I'm, I'm happy that for our case and, and for the digital education space, it was, um, it also had advantages. Yeah, sure. Well, it's, it yeah. sounds like certainly a hectic time. However, obviously massively yeah, yeah. beneficial for yeah. you and yeah, obviously yeah. The, the company as a whole, for sure. Um, when uh, at the start of covid uh, before as you said you were onboarding about 10 schools per month um in regarding products was it a case of there was one core product before covid and then covid actually allowed you to build and develop new products from there or did it sort of stick did you have the products in line to build in the near future but sort of covid maybe fast track that mm. so pre covid we had as core features a news feed and we had a chat, so messaging. Mm -hmm. We had the cloud, um, and basically like some some integrations with space and, and the app where you can integrate other solutions. Um, and and yeah, the timetable, obviously. So that was like the, the basic setup. Um, but actually, the so so that already helped some schools. But the most requested one, obviously, was video conferencing. Mm. Um, and we didn't have that pre-COVID. And so within several weeks, we had to build that. Um, and, and that was stressful, but, but it has turned out still today to be one of the, the most important uh, features which we could add. Yeah. yeah, yeah, certainly. I was going to say video conferencing. Obviously, there's you know there is tons of different video conferencing platforms out there that are, are mm. possible to use. But as you said, um, try you know the education space is very fragmented. There's lots of different things that were available at the time and having it all in one central location, of course, would, would massively benefit people to not have to switch to Zoom or switch to Teams or anything else that was there if it was all in one central platform. But of course, the demand yeah. meant that it had to be built pretty quickly, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And um, some, some, obviously, our app wasn't 100% stable all the time. Like basically yeah. all apps that were highly requested during the first lockdowns, just because even if you have the best experts on your team and the best servers, there are some things, right? You, you can uh, not anticipate until you actually have the usage mm. uh, like 10 times more than, than one <laughs> yeah. day before. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm so sorry for some um, users who really um, wrote angry emails or bad reviews on the internet when the app yeah. was down for an hour, but actually, um, the fact that they were so um, upset showed how important our app mm. was at that time, right? Yeah. Because if it was not relevant, they wouldn't have bothered. Um, 
So yeah, actually some of them really said, okay, you saved us. Like it's what some teachers um, said, yeah. and I'm very happy we could do this with the video conferencing. We've had some help from other, um, other uh, partners uh, to set that up. So we were very thankful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Not. As you said, I think the the angry emails were all in all in good faith, really. As a as you said, it was clear to see that they really really needed it. And look, of course, when when demand goes up like that, you're a new business. You know, it's all of a sudden, you know, business is doubled, tripled. You know, however, you know, got ten times greater. It's obviously gonna there are going to be some teething problems with with new products, certainly. And there always is, generally, no matter how how long you have to to build them, and especially when you only have, as I said, weeks to to build a, a whole new parts of your mm. product for sure. Um, so I want to I want to take it back to the real start team. I know, obviously, you said you were. Uh, approached by a co-founder at university um to, to come on board and, and help build Stewie. Where how did it how did it all come about? You know, where did the idea come from? How did he, you know, why did he approach you specifically to, to come on board? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So it actually started as a school project back when um the, the original founders were still students. Um and, and one of the co-founders, Jan Micha, he's the, the technical co-founder he built his first app when he was like eight years old or so. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and so often they, they would go to school in the morning and then they would realize the first lesson was canceled. Um, and as a student, that really bothers you, right? You, you could have slept longer, now you're sitting <laughs> yeah. there and yeah. waiting. Yeah. Um, and so they, they just started to build an app that would show the, the timetable with like substitutions if there were yeah. some or canceled lessons already at home so you could just sleep longer yeah, that's yeah. really <laughs> the basic idea yeah. um and and as a school project that was quite successful like won some some awards at uh, jugendforscht if someone knows that um and eventually they realized okay um after they had finished school okay we could turn this into a business. But it, it wasn't really like we could turn this into a business. It was more like, okay, other schools could need this as well. Yeah. So sure. why don't we sell it to them? Um, or even give it away for free. Like that, that's also a thought that, that yeah. came up in the beginning. Um, and and then obviously they thought about what, what other features could there be helpful. Okay, a newsfeed, cool. Um, and the very first version, it was only that only the school admin could send news and not all teachers or whatsoever. Um, and just having a way to share files. So that's the three core ideas. Um, but the focus was really the timetable. And um, yeah, then I got to know Daniel uh, in England, <clears throat> actually. So we did some kind of a short-term study in theology uh, after school, the both of us, and we get to know there and um, he found out that I was doing something with design. And, and so he actually, when he reached out to me, he w- only wanted to have a brochure. As a freelance designer, I should do a brochure for them. Um, and then we had some phone calls about it. And they were like, yeah, we are just starting this business. And um, it, it's super exciting. Uh, and we had a lot of conversations and I had some ideas of what to do and so ever. And there was just such a good kind of, chemistry yeah um that that even before i got to design the first draft for the brochure he said okay we want to have you on board um to to build uh, the whole thing up with us um and then i i was living in krefeld uh near cologne um, actually at that time and and he was based in koblenz with uh, the other co-founder um and so i would 
drive there for, for one week per day or so. And I thought, okay, it's running a startup. I could just do this besides my studies. I could still <laughs> yeah. uh, because it's just one day per week. Uh, I thought yeah. easy going, but it really fastly turned out that this wouldn't work at all. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, uh, and so we've had the first meetings at the kitchen table and, and Daniel's home. Uh, and we thought, okay, what do we need now? We need a website. We need this brochure. We need a pitch deck. Um, we need business cards. Obviously, yeah. all of us were chief, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> yeah. we had no team members. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. <laughs> so we need um, a social media profile. And we started to set up this everything and, and did some first COVID calls. Or actually, we drove to schools to sell to them. And sometimes they would shout at us, even be super angry, like because we were unexperienced children, sort of. And, and yeah. they were like, we don't need this. Go away. Um, it, it was hard it was tough but um, eventually we've had the first positive feedback and, and we won some startup pitches um, and when the first schools wanted to start with Stewie they said yeah okay let's do this we're going to sign a contract so the business model is obviously that we sell a license to the whole school um, sure. it depends a little on, on the amount of users but um, the, the school pays for it and when we signed the first schools we didn't actually know like, okay, how do we now onboard them? Like, how do they get their accounts? Um, yeah. <laughs> we didn't really have a system in place. We were just selling. And so yeah. actually one or two nights before we had to sort of onboard the new school, we built up a system that they would have these activation codes. We would print them on a sheet and every student would get his activation code. He could sign up with that to the app and then, then define a password and so on. And um, then we had a school with like 2,500 students. It was a Berufsschule, we say, like a professional yeah. school. Yeah. And we had to print these 2,500 pages. <laughs> and we only had a very small printer in the office. <laughs> yeah. And it would always, when, when you print so long, we even yeah. needed to print both sides because we had to put the data um, privacy yeah. Yeah, declaration sure. on the back. And, and, and when you have to print both sides and the printer runs for so long, it turns hot. <laughs> and the, the heat made the, the paper become wavy and yeah. then it would be stuck in the printer. So, <laughs> so it went actually for the whole day and night and I would sleep next to the printer and every like 10 minutes or so, yeah. I would need to get the printer, the chunk out of it yeah. and, and make sure it continues to print. And then at nine in the morning, we, we had a box in the office that we just got from Ikea and we put all these sheets in there and then we drove to the school and handed it over to them. <laughs> Like That's that, crazy. that was crazy. And, and like today, this whole process is fully digital. Fully yeah, of course. Yeah. And so on. We have a huge customer success team. Um, but, but we really, we were sort of students who had to figure out how to yeah. do this and learn along, along the way. But it was a lot of, like it was challenging, but also a lot of fun, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think it's crazy, like listening to some of the startup stories because you know, a lot, a lot yeah. of it does, does happen like that. You know, some of it's, you know, yeah. you, a lot of it's about, you know, friends or, you know, colleagues or whatever it might be coming together. And sometimes it's like in the weirdest places that you just sort of brainstorm ideas and it all starts to flow. And then, you know, you, you take a leap of faith and, and build it. <laughs> sleeping next to the Absolutely. printer. Sleeping next to the Absolutely. printer. It's, yeah. It's such a, yeah. such a yeah. good story. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no, um, it sounds like obviously it's been an incredible journey over the last five years from, as you said, you know, sleeping next to the printer to now everything being digitized, being in how many, how many schools are you integrated into now? 
we've around 5,000 schools working yeah. with our software. Yeah, so it's gone from sleeping next to the printer with the first few customers to now, you know, 5,000 schools, yeah. which is, is, is an incredible journey. And of course, it's forever increasing. It's still being successful, which is really good to good to hear. Um, so when when you became the, the founding designer, obviously, challenge-wise, sleeping next to the printer is definitely a challenge in itself. But <laughs> what do you, what did you see as the, the biggest challenges or what has been the biggest challenges that you've overcome um, in, the, in the early parts of the, the business starting? Mm-hmm. so when i started i was quite a perfectionist as a lot of designers probably are yeah. you really want yeah. to make things like yeah. super clean super yeah. nice and i had to get rid of that uh, and we had some discussions on that it, it was sort of hard because you're really so passionate about it right as a designer you just want yeah. to make it perfect you feel like you're steve jobs and and whatever but um we really had to learn okay what creates value and what doesn't so i i ended first times i would sometimes spend two hours thinking about the perfect border radius of our buttons right but but that really didn't create any value at all um if a school decides for stewie they definitely do not do because of the border radius and i think <laughs> yeah of course um, that, that, that that was a learning um, another mistake actually um or, or learning i think we spent some much some a little too much effort on making things fancy like we were building fancy designs but not good designs Uh, and um i see that in other startups as well you add a lot of shadows and make it fancy and nice gradients and and a lot of white space and it on the first view it feels like nice design or good design it feels designy but at the end um what design really is is the balance of aesthetics and functionality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it needs to look nice, but it also needs to work. If it was more the aesthetic side, it was art. If it was more the, the functionality side, it was engineering. But, mm-hmm. but a good design needs to look nice, but also work. And um, especially for, for UX and UI, I realized the whole UX side of things, the actual experience is sometimes more important than the visual side on the other yeah. um, and we had to figure out this along the path. And a good example, actually, that I have experienced from my own uh, usage is Shopify. I, I think when you use the, the backend, like the administration side of Shopify, it sort of looks a little old fa- old-fashioned, somehow yeah. like Windows 2000. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it is super usable, super yeah. super nice and seamless to use. Yeah. Um, and And that was was a learning for us yeah yeah definitely no completely agree i think every designer would say that they want to create you know picture perfect design that looks mm-hmm. incredible right um but sometimes that's not what the users want right you know sometimes it's not functional Absolutely. sometimes it's massively massively dependent on what your users want and i think that's where designs come on so so much in the last few years certainly since the pandemic as well the need to digitize the need for digital products has obviously increased massively um and the need for product designers to you know be be put into businesses has increased massively as well um however i think <clears throat> the best businesses i you know shopify as an example we use the best businesses with the best digital products are the ones who understand the design that their user wants or the user experience that their user wants as opposed to what they the designers who work there believe or deem it to be <laughs> you know if you mm, if you know, 
you're I think a lot of problems that businesses face and I've talked about on the podcast before with others is that assumption or competitor analysis becomes the forefront of what every you know every new feature or every new product that they want to build that's the only thing they sort of focus on right um you know the the top top end of the business the co-founders the the CEOs or whoever's in charge of that particular function has you know, comes up with the idea or they identify a problem they say right this is how we're going to solve it and that's just based off you know what they assume it to be <laughs> to the, they assume mm. the problem to be and how the the solution is there or they they you know they look at our, our direct competitors are doing this so let's just do it um because mm. you know that's what they're doing so it must be working right um but i think Absolutely. the ability to really engage with the user base that you have really fully understand what they one and what works what doesn't work and uh, as you well know team the design process from discovery through to what the actual end visuals look like can be a very lengthy can be a very complicated process it's not just here's a problem we'll ask what the users want bang it's solved <laughs> um mm -hmm. you know it's, sometimes there's a lot of things that you try that don't work um the process can be quite difficult but it's about you know getting to that end goal and of course you know when you release that your new feature or that new product um sometimes it's not going to work either <laughs> sometimes it is about yeah. going back and, and starting again um but yeah absolutely cool now i wanted to move on to the next topic you know the next main topic that we we wanted to cover off here and that was of course hiring designers in, a, in an early stage startup as well um so i know from you were there from the start um obviously a lot of the design work initially was done by yourself um what point did it get to where you thought right now we're at this particular point in the company's progress i potentially need some help <laughs> when did mm -hmm. that point when did that point come to you do you think mm -hmm. yeah but, uh, at two points the first point was when we just thought okay let's create a cool company and hire people yeah <laughs> um, so we trust the, the wrong time obviously um, yeah and and the second time was when i just couldn't do it all alone anymore mm -hmm. when when uh, i was the bottleneck because developers couldn't continue with with interfaces when marketing couldn't run a campaign because there was a brochure missing or, or yeah. so on. um and so then we we started to hire and we also then had the money we had some funding to actually pay for people um yeah that, that was the right time then sure and when Obviously, I know you said you're a bit of a perfectionist to start off with. Um, and obviously you had to learn, I wouldn't say the hard way, but you had to learn that obviously it's not all about necessarily creating um, picture-perfect designs all the time. So when when you decided to look to hire um, or what, you know, when, you, when you're looking at designers, what specifically are you looking for? I think typically from hiring managers, I, I get to know quite a lot about portfolios. I've spoken about a lot on the podcast before what you look for in portfolios. But of course... I wanted to ask what you specifically look for when you when you see a designer's mm -hmm. portfolio, but also what outside of the portfolio is is important to you when you're when you're speaking or interviewing people. You know what are you what are you looking for as a as an overall? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So obviously every company has different requirements. I think my personal view is a little uncommon here, but I would actually say I don't really care about portfolios because I don't have one by myself, but I know that yeah. I have a lot of experience from the past five years. Um, and actually, when someone says, for example, okay, I've been doing this and this and this, and I didn't want to, sp to spend time on, on, on creating a portfolio, I'm like, okay, cool. Let's, let's have a look at what you did, right? So yeah. they can just explain. And, and what I would say, um, apart from a portfolio, what I generally look for in people are like three, 
three core things. Number one is personality. Number two is problem solving. And number three is a sense for aesthetics. And, and, and uh, number one, the personality, obviously everyone wants to work with cool people who are fun to be around and who, who, who can nicely communicate their ideas, who have good social skills. So I would actually say, if you're a designer looking for a job, invest into your personality um, and, and these sort of social skills, personal development. Um, number two, um, this whole thing, problem solving, really means, okay, how good are you at having a complex situation, having a complex problem, understanding it, um, taking these, these challenging requirements, and then building a simple, a sophisticated solution to solve that. And, and at the end, it's less about how that looks like, right? If I only show the result, what can I do with this, right? In a portfolio. Yeah. I want to see, okay, like, what was the problem? How did you tackle it? Like, what is the, the smart idea that you had that no one else had at the end mm. to solve it? Um, and that's something you can really good explain in an interview, right? And, and the third, the sense for aesthetics, obviously, that's where a portfolio can play a, an important mm. role just to show what general sense you have here. But I personally think ACV can also show that. And yeah. you know that I've actually rejected some candidates because the CV looked not nice. Yeah, um, of course. But I think it, it really just shows that you don't have the sense for aesthetics. A, a good designer, in my opinion, I mean, it's different for only these people who do, for example, like UX research and so on, mm -hmm. right? They can, yeah. they don't must be these visual um, geniuses, but a good designer, in my eyes, has an intrinsic mm, passion to create nice things and they wouldn't ship a, a shitty CV. I hope I, I'm allowed to say this on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they wouldn't ship it. Like they would yeah. personally have something inside and say, <laughs> yeah. I can do this. Right? Yeah. This is the perfectionist part uh, yeah. that's inside of a designer. And if you don't have that, I don't know if a job in design is actually right for you. Mm. I, I'm, I'm very honest. I feel like this sense for aesthetics, you can't really learn that. You can improve in that area, yeah. obviously, but but if you're really coming from a background where you don't have that, I don't know if it's the right thing. And um, we, we often get these this applications from, from people who, for example, did a career foundry course and they now want to go into design and they have this sort of picture-perfect portfolio and they show, okay, here's the perfect research process and yeah. I created user personas and so on. Yeah. Um, but I would focus less on tools and methods because everyone can learn tools and methods, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't really care. Some people still like use these graphs to show, okay, how good are my InDesign skills? How good are my Figma skills? Yeah. Like, I don't really care about tools. You can use, you can learn any tool, yeah. right? Um, so personality, problem solving, and a general sense for aesthetics that's yeah. sort of deeply rooted in your character. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a, it's a funny concept because obviously, um, as you said, it should sort of, you know, someone who's putting forward a CV, if if it's, I know a lot of the comments you've made about some of the CVs is that, you know, there's misalignments there, you know, there's the, the spacing is off and there's different fonts, you know, whatever it might be. Um, mm -hmm. But it also almost like should annoy them as a designer that it doesn't look look good, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And they should look yeah, at that yeah. and go, they should look at that and go, yeah, yeah, this, the misalignment there, the different fonts, you know, the, the, the spacing, there, it's annoying that it doesn't look, look pretty good on the page. Absolutely. 
Um, I, I'm a big believer. I think that most people would believe that, you know, as a designer, portfolio is probably more relevant, more important because it, do, it should display the work that the designer has done. But I also really think that CV is still important for a designer. Um, I have the constant battle with a lot of people that I work with, a lot of people that I speak to, to, to just get rid of like the traditional shitty CVs that I see where it's just like, job title and then here's like my really generic responsibilities and tasks that i had mm -hmm. in this particular role because and i made a video about it on linkedin as well <laughs> um mm -hmm. but i just i don't understand you know unless even the best designers out there the best engineers the best whoever it might be if you don't portray that on your cv and you don't portray that on your portfolio how is a hiring manager meant to know that you're the best designer or mm -hmm. engineer <laughs> you know mm -hmm. i the, yeah. the cvs the cvs i always see are as i said just generic this is what i did like three or four bullet points of task responsibilities and i say to everyone i work with you know you put yourself in a hiring manager's shoes right now. Look at your CV and tell me, does that blow you away? And they always go, well, no. And I'm like, so why do you think it's going to blow the hiring manager away that you're applying for, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. With with designers, yeah. gem generally, um, you would have, you know, you're there to solve problems. You're there to um, build new features, build new products. So tell us that on your CV. You don't have to write paragraphs and paragraphs about it, of course, but tell us what you worked on specifically. Tell us what your individual tasks and responsibilities were. Tell us the impact of that and how that actually affected the company's growth or the company's success, the individual team success, yeah. the product success. You know, if you did something incredible that increased conversion rate by a percentage or something like that, tell us that, you know, that's what hiring managers want to want to look for because they're like, wow, you know, this, this person is actually, you know, has a focus on outcomes, has a focus on improving things, being successful there, as opposed to just writing really generic things that pretty much any designer or engineer could write in, in their role, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, yeah I agree with... Also, yeah, go on, sorry. Speaking about just the whole business mindset, especially in an early stage startup, yeah, of course. important, right? And um, actually, one of the last candidates we signed, I was convinced at the moment I read the headline of his he had a short folio like not there wasn't really a lot of projects shown it was yeah. just a mix of a cv and a portfolio it would only say okay i've worked on this project here's one shot of this basically but the headline of this page really showed me that he understands what value we want to create with design right that it's at the end about the business growth and about like um, user centricity centricity and creating value um and and so it kind of this this one sentence sort of showed off how he thinks and acts as a, as a person and and what he that he regards design as a tool to create business value at the end i think that, yeah. that also really matters yeah yeah definitely definitely i think certainly the more the more senior you get in your design career um, the business side of things probably becomes a bit more predominant and becomes more effective but certainly when you join an early stage mm -hmm. startup if you're one of the early members of the team generally you're going to take on a lot more responsibility than you would if you joined a delivery hero hello fresh in berlin for mm -hmm. instance right yeah, <laughs> yeah you're going to take yeah, on a, a lot more of that very early on as opposed to yeah, if you were a, a much larger business, you might be a very small part of a very small feature of the products that they're building, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but when you're at yeah. an early stage startup, there's going to be a, a lot of lot more responsibility you take on your shoulders. So I th think no matter what level you're at, um, I think you should 
definitely have a big focus on making sure your CV displays you. Obviously, your core values as a designer shows that you are you have a an understanding at least of the the business side of things. But you know, make yourself mm. look good. You know, make yourself stand out. I don't. I just Absolutely. don't understand. I think it's. I think it's a. It's a common problem across the any industry really when writing CVs because there's a lots lots of templates out there right now um mm-hmm. that people just go right i'll just use this template and i'll just sort of follow like some some templates even have like mm-hmm. suggested bullet points like actually you say i'm a designer <laughs> yeah and then it will just come up with like a paragraph of like ge- generic stuff that designers do and they mm-hmm. just use that um and you know it's, it's so far away from where it needs to be um last mm-hmm. last question i just wanted to cover off you really timo was um obviously designers i think the common i think it's like the the spotify model everyone talks about where obviously designers work cross-functionally with with other um people in the product team or marketing team whether it might be um, engineering teams generally um i think research has become a separate function of recent um a lot more companies are are looking to build out separate dedicated research teams um alongside the product design team now um but to also work cross-functionally with the other guys in an ideal world (laughs) if you had unlimited resources and everything like that um not necessarily doesn't have to be at stewie but just in general how you see it best working how would you see designers best collaborating with the other members of the cross-functional teams it's a tough one Uh, to be very honest we are still working on yeah yeah. we have so often figured out things on the way and some things work in companies like in others but not for us and and the other way around so i think um well let's speak about where we are at the moment and then what i think would be ideal in the future so we've come from being one huge product team um and basically one or two designers who would serve that huge product team uh, to having squads so we have three squads yeah. um, and they work on various parts of the app. And um, our goal is at the moment to get one designer for each of the squads. Um, and, and also then have sort of a little, a good balance of UX heavy people who are good with concepts and, and yeah. also UX copywriting in a startup, right? You can't have a separate person for that. But um, rather this part and then people who are strong with ui and making things pixel perfect um and and easy to develop and so this whole research part um i i think it's good for when we run interviews we would often also have a developer to join that inter the, sure. the user interview yeah because I think everyone working on the product needs to have a, an understanding of what the user thinks like. Um, yeah, I, I think that's super important. And so I would actually still want to have every designer and also every developer at some point occasionally be involved yeah. in user research and, and interviews. Um, but um, I don't know at what point it makes sense to have an own person to, who only does research. To be yeah. very open, I, I can't really speak about that. I think in some greater companies, it can make a lot of sense. We don't yeah. have experience with it yet. Yeah. But, but obviously, research is an, is an important part. And yeah. um, I like to, to um, how to say, to have people doing research who sort of also can imagine solutions like not only only research only if you don't really yeah. ever have an idea how you could 
turn something into an interface, um, I think you don't always know to how to ask the right questions. Hmm. Um, maybe so, but that's also just a personal thought. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's it's massively case by case, isn't it? I think different companies will have different views mm. on whether dedicated researchers are needed or necessary. Um, I think certainly as a I think the generalist product designer these days will need to be involved in user research or conduct their own user research, conduct their own user interviews. I think it's a really great point that you made, though, about having developers, having everyone who's going to be involved in that whole product discovery part um, should be involved in that at some point to really understand what their users are wanting so they can really gain the, the concept of why they're doing this, why they're building these specific parts or mm. specific features into, into the product for sure. Um, mm. Cool. By the way, there's a quick shout out to a friend of mine who's founding a, a product or a company called Product Lane. And they have a sort of um, addition to, to Linear um, where you can more easily gather feedback, for example, from user interviews um, to make that accessible for the whole company. So, so that's something I guess is, is really important in the future for any yeah. company because I realized it affects also management decisions, right? When, when we have two features and we need to decide which one we're going to build like in the next quarter when it's a very large yeah. one. Um, then at some point when it's about resources, about roadmaps, about priorities, management would be involved and, and like C-level even saying, okay, we need this first or this first, but first, but they don't have the same sense for the user's needs as those people who, who run the interviews, who do the research. Yeah. So I think um, independent from what tool they use, whether they use like product lane or anything else, um, it's good to make um, insights from research accessible to a larger group of the company and also to management. Um, yeah. 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 No, I definitely, definitely agree with that point. I think it hundred percent should influence management decisions, especially when mm. there's the, the weighing up of, of options. If you've got options, which, which features to build first, um, having access to, to that research will of course make their decision probably a lot easier, I would say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and for example, what they want to do at product lane is um, when you record an interview, um, and you would have a, a snippet where someone talks about a specific problem, a specific yeah. need or feature, you could directly attach that to your ticket mm. in, in your like linear or Jira um, software um, so that it is easily accessible. Um, yeah, I think that, that that's a key role because so often we would have people in the company who make decisions, but who don't really have a feeling for the user. And yeah. we, we try to minimize that. Yeah, definitely. It goes back to obviously top level making decisions based off assumption mm -hmm. on what they deem the, the solution to be. Um, but having a tool yeah. like this will certainly help that in the future. Timo, been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, really, really appreciate your time, of course. Looking forward to meeting you in, the, in Berlin next week as well. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But yeah, um, again, real pleasure. Um, have a great day. And uh, yeah, we'll catch up soon. <laughs> Thank you very much, Matt. Bye. <laughs> Bye.